This is Women's Leadership Success, episode number 121. What kind of decision maker and risk taker are you? Are you a leader who examines the risks and makes a decision for great results or learns from that experience? Or are you stalled, indecisive, and afraid you'll make a mistake? If you are unaware and unwilling to notice the obvious before you take action, you are not a leader. Join me today with top author and global economic policy analyst, Michelle Wucker, and learn how you can take risks and manage decisions to amplify your results in business, your career, and your life. Welcome to Women's Leadership Podcast, showing you how to influence people, improve your performance, and advance your career. Brought to you by women's leadership and career expert Sabrina Brom and womensleadershipsuccess.com. Here's your chance to meet women trendsetters leading the way to success, accomplishment, and balance in business and life. No matter if you're a manager, CEO, or entrepreneur, join Sabrina for coaching and no-nonsense advice to improve your career and bottom line. Welcome. This is Women's Leadership Success. I'm very excited today to have Michelle Walker with us. She's a strategic advisor, a think tank uh, president, former president, and the best-selling author of The Gray Rhino and Company, and also. Um, you are what you risk, the new art and science of navigating in an uncertain world. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. So would you explain what the Gray Rhino talked about and then what this new book is about? So the Gray Rhino is a way to talk about the difference between people who see a big scary thing coming at them and deal with it and the ones who, who don't. Uh, the, it's, you know, big and scary. That's the rhino with the horn. Imagine it coming, coming at you. And it's a real challenge to be one of, to people, to be one of the decision makers, the leaders, the organizations that sees the rhino and pays attention to it, as opposed to the ones who aren't aware that we're surprisingly likely to take our eye off of the obvious things in front of us. And we're much more vulnerable to them than we'd like to think. And you are what you risk. What is the, how does that add on to what you already wrote? So the Great Rhino came out and I went all around the world and people kept asking me, how do I apply this to my personal life? And I didn't know what to do with that because I do finance and policy and geeky things. I'm not really a self-help author, but it was such an organic and authentic response uh, that I felt like I needed to address it. And I spoke to a friend of mine who was the CEO of a big private equity firm and told him how, how torn I was over what to do. And he said, you know, Michelle, there's a much closer connection between personal risk attitudes and psychology and the kind of things that you write about than you might think. He says, our investment committee last week met and we reviewed the things that didn't turn out the way we wanted. And in every single case, the red flags were there in the due diligence, but it wasn't the business model. It wasn't the product itself. It wasn't the economy in general. It was the bad personal risk decisions by the CEO. It was the cheating. It was the domestic violence, the speeding, the drunk driving. And so that got me very interested in the relationship 
between individual psychology and organizations, and even the broader cultural environment around that, uh, that led people to be the ones to deal with the gray rhino or or not. And uh, so you are what you risk. Is it's really like the mirror. The gray rhino is about the sort of a structural things around an event itself, around mm-hmm. the decision-making, around the incentives. And You Are What You Risk is about what each one of us brings to the gray rhino in front of us. So um, how do we know, how do we assess risk? In other words, there's some risk we shouldn't take, you know, like uh, jumping off a cliff, but how do we know what risks are ones that we need to take and how do we learn to modulate our response to those risks? So it's a great question. And it's one that uh, that's, that's tough because a lot of people come to me and they assume that a risk is fixed, that this kind of risk is good and this kind of risk is bad. Mm-hmm. And my point is that you need to really understand who you are to understand the risks that are the best for you to take. And there are both active risks and passive risks. So the active risk is the the skydiving, you know, the adventurous thing, the jaywalking, the investing in the penny stock that your cousin's brother recommended. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, there are passive risks. And those, that's basically the risk of not doing something, the risk of sitting still that people aren't as aware of as we'd think. I mean, people talk about leaving my job as a big risk. But in many cases, staying at that job is a bigger risk. If you're stagnant, you know, if you think your boss is about to get fired, if your boss is a bully, and people don't think about risk often enough as a choice, which is really what it is. And so what the, what you are, what your risk is about is understanding yourself, how you see risk, what the biases are that you bring to a choice that's in front of you, and then creating the environment that allows you to make the best possible decisions given your personality and given your experiences in the past that have shaped your attitudes towards risk. So that makes a lot of sense. And you talk about a risk fingerprint. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that would work in this, what you're talking about? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's really kind of interesting. I, I had written about a risk fingerprint in the, in the, first draft of the book. And then in the cover design, we actually came up with, uh, you know, you can see uh, behind me, there's this uh, map in the shape of a fingerprint. And it was in the cover design that I actually realized that this concept was was powerful. So I went back in the next draft and, and really made it central to the book. So the risk fingerprint is the things that affect the risk choices that you make. If you think about, say, uh, you know, a detective at a crime scene, looking at the fingerprints on the wine glasses, or you're going through uh, immigration at the airport and you stick your finger down, give a biometric print. Those imprints are what we might think of as a risk profile that people talk about a lot in finance. It's the choices that you would make. And so the risk fingerprint is the things that go into making that imprint. And just like a real fingerprint, they've got three components. The first you can think of as like the the whirls and the arches, the the shapes that are genetic, that are unique, just like a snowflake. And that's why they're such a great biometric identifier. And it's something that you can't change. It's it's your risk personality. It's whether you're 
uh, you're calm or anxious when you deal with risk. It's whether you're uh, methodical or impulsive. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the parts. The second, also like a real fingerprint, is how your experiences shape how you see risk. And there's an interaction with the genetic part. For example, if you cut your finger, the imprint is going to have a mark from the scar, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to change that. But not everybody's behavior is going to change in the same way. I think about if you accidentally cut yourself with a knife while you're cooking, some people never want anything sharper than a butter knife, a plastic one <laughs> you know, in, in the future. And other people say, I cut myself, that wasn't so bad. I can deal with that. I'm going to be a sushi chef. And so those, those two parts interact. And then the third part of the fingerprint uh, is where I spend a lot of my time. And you can think about it as if you do a lot of manual labor, you get calluses that show up, uh, or if you use soft, sweet smelling shea butter, or if you spend too much time in the tub, uh, that changes the fingerprint as well. And so our habits, uh, the processes that we put in place, the environment that we create uh, physically from what we eat, spicy foods actually make us more uh, eager to take risks, or the temperature, cold uh, cold makes us more risk-seeking, the tempo of the music. Um, if you're if you're listening to something fast tempo, you're more likely to speed in your car. Mm -hmm. uh, whether you take Tylenol, what day of the week, all sorts of, of physiological influence on your risk taking that you probably don't think of at all, but actually affect the decisions you make. So you really knew, do need to be aware. And then it's also the people around you. Uh, the people in the room, whether you've chosen them or not, it's uh, you need to be careful in choosing who's helping you make a decision. Uh, do you have the people with the expertise that you need? Do you have the people who help make you feel safer if you are a bit timid about uh, new things? Or are they the kind of people who say, stop and take a deep breath if you are more likely to just go barreling into something? So those three elements, the innate personality, the lived experience, and then the environment that you create and influence, those come together to make your risk fingerprint. And that's what is behind the imprint that you leave, which is the, the risks that you take, the choices that you make. So we could, it sounds like we can influence those by changing some of those habits. Absolutely. And I get asked a lot if there's an, an ideal risk personality. And there's actually not, we need all different kinds. Mm -hmm. In fact, having a diverse group of people around the room, you know, somebody who's a lot more adventurous, balanced out by someone who's okay, let's just, you know, let's, you know, so you can have a structured debate about what kind of risk that you are going to take. And the question is whether, how you, how you create the environment, how you set up habits, how you surround yourself with the people that help you to make the choices that are best for you. I mean, one person is perfectly happy working for a traditional corporation and that's fine. Somebody mm -hmm. else would go out of their mind and they'll go and be an entrepreneur. And you need all of those different kinds of personalities, but to make the right choices, to create the right environment, you need to be self-aware. You need to really understand yourself. And once you do, you can better understand understand the people around you, which means you can have better teamwork, you can be a better leader, you can speak more confidently and comfortably with your clients, uh, you come into negotiations 
a much stronger when you know what's what's the risk that you're willing to take and not. And as much as you can find out about your uh, the person across the table you're negotiating with. So it's a hugely powerful set of insights, but that we really don't spend nearly enough time thinking about. Well, you mentioned in the book, uh, you were talking about people that invest in the stock market and that people that are really good at making money are more objective about what's going on. They don't they don't have as much emotion around losing or winning. They're just more objective about whatever they're doing. And it seemed from what I read in your book, like it it's better if we can be more objective about the risk as opposed to really scared about it or super exhilarated. Is that true? I think it's important to take into account both uh, objective reason and emotion. You tend to have people in two very different camps that don't talk to each other enough. And the people who like to use reason and spreadsheets and analysis and and go at things very uh, unemotionally need to understand that there are other people who make their decisions based on some bad experience they had in the past, what else is going on in their life. And so some people are more emotion-driven and other ones are more reason-driven. And both could benefit from a little bit of the other element. And you know, a lot of the, uh, the professional investors or traders, many of them pay attention to their physical state when they're trading. They look at, at biometric indicators. Uh, they think about their stress level. In fact, there's there's some some places where you know, if your stress level is too high, just you know, get away from the computer. Mm-hmm. And so it's a mix. It's really that mix of, of emotion and reason that together affect how risky we see something as being, because not everybody perceives things uh, the same way, then how much risk you are comfortable with and then what it might take to change that comfort level and what behaviors you employ to make those choices in the future. Because if, you know, if you're very sensitive to risk, you see it right away and you start thinking about it, then you've got more of an opportunity to come up with a plan, to think about the possible scenarios. And that actually reduces the risk that if something goes wrong, it can spin out of control because you will have done some thinking ahead of of time. So can you talk some more about that? Um, Improving the odds of making good decisions. So there's, it sounds like there's a way that we can begin to practice or think about things that will help us make better decisions. Absolutely. Well, the first thing is self-awareness, you know, know how you generally approach risks. And that could involve uh, reflections like looking at uh, the biggest risk that you look that you took in your life, whether you were happy about how it turned out or not, what you might have done differently with uh, with hindsight, uh, what situations make you most comfortable or most uncomfortable, and uh, what you want to be, what what your goals are, and where you see yourself being. Mm-hmm. And once you understand that, you can start thinking about whether if you feel like you're not taking enough risks, what will it do? To, what does it take to make you more comfortable? Who do you need around you? What? Who are the kind of advisors? What's the kind of expertise? But also what kind of personality types do you need around you? Um, I'm a big fan of the uh, the chatty best friend 
who says all the stuff that nobody else is going to say that, you know, the Joan Cusack character or the, the Aquafina character says, don't wear that, wear that red dress. Uh, somebody who can say the things that you don't want to hear, but you trust is telling you what they see in, in your best interest mm-hmm. and a variety of perspectives. So if you surround yourself with people like that, if you increase your knowledge about whatever the risk is that you're thinking about taking Uh, When you study it, you, one, will become more confident. You'll feel like you've got more control. And you also will reduce the chances of overlooking something that would be a a major, major misstep. So it's, it's a question of creating the environment, looking at your goals, looking at what you're willing to risk losing and what not. And once you do that, things become very, very clear. After the pandemic or during the pandemic, even you see all these stories about people quitting their jobs and and the the stories say, oh, people are taking much riskier decisions. But Mm -hmm. that's not the case at all. It's that people are prioritizing things differently. They're assigning a different risk level to working in a job that they are not so crazy about, to working in a job that they think might not be there for very long, uh, you you know, spending more time with your family, having a kid. Any of those choices are just basically reprioritized during the pandemic. And that's uh, a function of having more time to reflect, uh, more self-awareness. And for many people, it was a sense of mortality. The, you know, this is what I really want to to leave the world with if I go Mm -hmm. and I don't want to wait till some point in the future because there might not be one. Let me ask you a very personal, real question. Your willingness to address this question and your answer could mean the difference between doubling or more your income in the next year. Do you consider yourself a high-potential female executive who seeks more recognition, income, and influence? Someone who aspires to the C-suite or higher? Or maybe you seek a whole new opportunity, either internally or externally with a new company? but somehow you feel stuck, or maybe you're not recognized for your hard work and are getting passed over for promotion, or you just need a new strategy to help you advance your potential and your income. The demand for high potential female executives that earn top salaries and profit sharing opportunities has never been higher. But if you don't know how to stand out from the crowd, attract your champions, navigate organizational politics, or lack confidence to ask for what you want, you may be left behind or miss out on some great opportunities. If you can relate to any of these core executive development questions or challenges that may be holding you back, I've got some good news for you. For many years I've been an executive coach and management consultant. One of the most rewarding aspects for me as a champion of women's leadership is helping women like you have more influence, impact, and income in business and life. I've had phenomenal success helping women advance their careers and radically increase their income, especially in STEM and tech, when previously they had been stuck or sidelined. That is why I'm inviting you to apply for my executive coaching package for high potential women to help you stand out from the crowd, 
turbocharge your career, and radically increase your income. Warning: This turbocharger career is not for everyone. It's not an overnight transformation. But if you are a focused, high-potential woman leader, willing to invest in yourself and follow my proven strategies to advance your leadership and career, you'll be amazed at what we can accomplish together. I invite you to book a free discovery coaching session with me right away because I can only take a limited number of people a year for this special package. So I invite you to reach out to me via my contact page on womensleadershipsuccess.com so we can connect and see if we're a good match. Thanks for listening and now back to the show. So I, that's all great. I want to back up. So I'm going to be self-aware and I'm going to take the thing that I'm afraid, oh my gosh, this is a big risk. And I'm going to analyze what 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 is the consequence of this? Am I going to, you know, somebody going to die? Am I going to lose my job? What's the consequence of this? And try and and dissipate some of these fears that are not so real that maybe I've I have since I was a kid and get more used to it's okay I can go ahead and for instance give the speech and uh, speak up in the meeting and even if I say the wrong thing it's not really that big of a deal so it's rehearsing or practicing so that it becomes less of a anxiety provoking event that I'm doing the thing absolutely that that sort of practicing is is so important. And you think about whether the fear is worth it. Uh, I interviewed someone for, for a you are what you wish risk, a, a life coach who mm-hmm. had been a, a soccer player in high school and was dreaming of being a professional soccer player. And then he had an injury, which blew that out the window. And then because he'd been practicing all the time during high school, he hadn't developed the social skills that he wanted. And so he deliberately put himself into uncomfortable situations saying, you know, I'm going to go to this bar and talk to someone who I've never met before, or I'm going to take this odd job where I have to dress up in a funny costume and hand out, you know, coupons and things. And so he consciously looked for situations that made him uncomfortable. And so if you think about little, taking little risks, whether it's, you know, choosing something different on the menu or going a different way to work, or or dressing differently, even those sort of little changes can actually make you more comfortable with with uncertainty and with with doing things where you don't feel you have enough knowledge to control the situation. Uh, And so once you do that, when you look at a, a bigger challenge, like changing your career or starting a company or what kind of investment, uh, you will you'll be more a little bit more flexible. Your risk muscles will be a little bit stronger. Uh, you'll be a little bit more comfortable with uncertainty or a little less uncomfortable. Uh, so it's it's a muscle we have to develop, basically a muscle so that we get more comfortable with it. Absolutely. But what does it have to do with risk agency? So risk agency is the sense of that you have control. The sense you have the choice about what sort of risks that you take. And there's some very, very interesting psychological research uh, about what risks people are willing to accept 
uh, which ones they aren't. And uh, Paul Slovich is the the uh, you know sort of really the 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 um, the the, the the big uh, the big name in this area and he talks about when people feel more sense of a control of control they're actually willing to accept what might from the outside look like a bigger risk uh for example uh with the um uh, the 737 max uh, uh problems after the two crashes the pilots in the U.S. came out with a statement saying, "Yeah, we're we're comfortable with. It. They they've been trained on it. They you know they're at the at the wheel. They they know what's. They feel like they've got a lot more confidence uh, about being able to control the situations." And the flight attendants association put out a statement said, "Uh uh-uh, uh, no way. We do not want to get on those planes because <laughs> you know they they haven't had the training to uh, to to drive it to overcome any sort of problems." And uh, they don't feel the the control. So that's very, very important. A lot of research shows that when people feel like they've got a choice of whether to accept a risk or not, uh, they're they're more comfortable. They they they're comfortable with less regulation. They're more likely to tolerate it. Uh, and there's some things we can't control, like uh, you know what kind of energy, what kind of you know big policy issues, or you know global climate change, things that seem so big that it's hard to feel like anyone has any sense of control. But in things like climate change, you need everyone around the world to make changes, you know, big and small. And so unless each one of those people feels that they're going to be able to contribute to the solution, they're going to say, why should I do anything? Because it's not going to make a difference. So it's very important that people feel they have the agency, they have the the sense of power to reduce a risk and to feel more comfortable. Uh, we saw during the pandemic very, very different reactions that were uh, very different depending on the kind of messaging that local governments and media were were putting out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you saw some people, you know, wearing the mask, doing social distancing because they they felt that. It was simple. It wasn't that big of a a deal. It was effective. And it was something that they could do. It felt better. And then you saw other people who were getting different messaging, who had, in many of them, it was the same level of fear uh, about the virus. Uh, But they said, no, I'm going out without the mask because I can control. It's something I can control. And, you know, whether it's the the right thing, the right choice or not, um, people choose what they feel they can do. And that's affected by their own upbringing, by the people around them, uh, by cultural values, and by the kind of messaging that they're getting from sources that they respect. I think it's really important for people to be able to have choices and have an exit strategy. Uh, People that say, well, I'm married to a terrible person, but I can't leave. Um, My job is awful but I have bills, so I have to stay. Um, I think that's the worst of all things when when you don't feel like you have any choice. Absolutely. Figuring out a way you have a choice makes such a difference. Absolutely. And that's actually something that I talk about in in The Gray Rhino, that, that when you see the big thing coming at you, there are different stages that people tend to fall into. I mean, some of it's complete denial. They just say, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. Uh, by the time they come to me, they're usually not in that stage anymore. Then, then there's muddling, which is what we're talking about. People recognize the problem, but they have 452 excuses for why they can't 
they can't do anything. And you see that a lot in in with public officials uh, or you know, bureaucracies in corporations. Uh, but you, and I hear with, with people all the time the you know why you can't change your diet when your doctor says you need to stop eating the cheeseburgers because your cholesterol's you know you know out of control, and they set that muddling stage. And what you want to do is to be able to go to the next stage and say, okay, what what does it take? You know, how what's my strategy to get out of this? If I know something is uncomfortable, what can I do to make that easier for me? Who can I turn to 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 help me? Uh, and then you you look at the, the sort of the panic stage, uh, which is when you're just freaked out and you're going to do something, whatever's in front of you to do. And it's often the wrong thing, but it's also the time when you're most likely to react. And then there's the action where you you take some action, but a lot of people just do something and then say, OK, I did the thing, even though it might not solve the problem entirely. And I found that a lot of people find themselves in a particular stage in different types of crises uh, and challenges. They, they find themselves often in the same stage. And that really depends on their, their personality, their self-awareness, their experiences, and what they bring. And what's interesting is a lot of people in groups feel like it's riskier to try to head off a bad outcome than to do nothing. You know, they're saying people would rather be wrong with everybody else than be right alone. So I think that it's important to recognize that when you see a risk, you are probably emotionally going to feel that there's a risk in dealing with it in in you know basically getting getting away from the problem or in many cases some people are afraid of succeeding oh really tell me about that well you know it's it's funny it's uh it's uh it's when people look at the scenarios and they might have some sort of you know emotional thing in the back of their head where they think okay what if what if i succeed then that would change who I think I am. So there's some people who, for whom failing is scarier and others for whom succeeding is scarier because they might not feel ready or they, you know, whatever reason that, you know, something from their childhood, I don't know. Uh -huh. but, but I think it's important to recognize that, that, that you may be afraid of succeeding, that succeeding is a risk. So it's, it sounds like it's just really a good idea to, Practice and get your muscles stronger so that you have more agency, more choices about the risks that could help you be more successful. Do you find that women have any specific things that are more difficult? Have you run into any specific things about women in, in the workplace? Oh, man, women and risk is something I can go on forever. There's a whole chapter about it. Um, but this. But the interesting thing to me is that when I tell people that I have something to say about women and risk, they say, oh, you want to talk about how women are risk averse, right? And my head wants to explode because I said, no, 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 no. I want to talk about how women tend to be risk astute, risk aware, risk savvy. Uh, oh. Don't say the word risk averse. So if you look at the research, uh, for many for many years, people assume that the, the psychological and sociological research said that women were, were more risk averse. Mm -hmm. But more recently, an economist named Julie Nelson went and used new statistical techniques to review 
like, I think it was like 1500 uh, articles that had been written. And in many cases, this conclusion was the tiniest bit statistically significant or sometimes not at all. Mm -hmm. And she also said, look, a lot of these are looking at averages instead of ranges. And so she found that there was a 95% overlap between men and women in the risk choices that they would make. And I've also heard women be very self-deprecating about about this, about risk. Uh, And as I say, oh, I'm so risk averse. And then I look at their curves. It's a powerful woman who's done amazing things. You know, the first woman to do this, the first woman to do that. And it, uh, it baffles me. And there's something called stereotype threat, which is if someone holds a misconception about you, any belief, whether it's true or not, you might be more likely to internalize that. Uh, There's also some research showing that men and women have different risk preferences in different areas. So that in things uh, like, uh, you know, risky driving or speeding or using drugs uh, or making decisions without enough information, men are more likely to take those types of risks. Mm -hmm. And when women are making decisions, they tend to look at the context. They want more information. Uh, which is, you know, risk savviest is common sense. And there's one area where the research shows that women actually are more comfortable taking risks, and that's in social risks. That's in speaking up and saying the thing that nobody wants to hear. And I think that's because many women are used to have been used to having been in situations where the, the only woman in the room or a couple women in the room, and where speaking up means either one, you're going to get ignored. Or two, you're going to be told that you need to remember your place and you're too bossy or aggressive or whatever. Or that some guy five minutes later is going to raise the same idea and get tons of credit and applause for it. And you're like, oh, <laughs> hello. Um, so it's, you know, it's challenging for uh, for women. And there are big consequences about these misconceptions about women being, quote unquote, risk the A word I don't say anymore. Um and that's that, you know, venture capitalists are less likely to fund women founders, even though mm-hmm. the research shows that they've got a better track record than men. And it's in part because they have misconceptions about women in risk that uh, doctors will make assumptions about women patients that are based on these, these mis- misconceptions about risk. Some financial advisors will offer women quote unquote, less risky options, you know, things that are, you know, more bonds and less stock because they assume that that's what they want. Women might get passed over for promotions or jobs uh, because of these uh, misperceptions. And so there's there's a huge cost. There's also a huge cost to men, certainly to those who might have done better investing in a woman than in, in a man. And also, Men have certain expectations about risk taking that aren't necessarily healthy. It's uh, you know in the days before GPS, the you know asking someone for directions, <laughs> you don't do that. Right. Um, and so you know, so men who speak out about risk who say, "Hey, let's rethink this," they also get punished if they have a, a sort of atypical response to something. So this whole area of gender and risk is is fraught and we need to really be aware and rethink it and have new conversations. And I think women need to retell their risk stories in their own way. And they need to embrace the times that they have 
taken risks and make sure that other people are aware of it. Oh, I, I love that. What a what a great way to end the show. I love what you're saying about rethinking how women take risks. That's beautiful. Is there any last thing that you want to say to us before we end the show today? I'll just say that that sometimes the simplest questions can be the most powerful, in particular when it comes to to risk. Uh, you know, with the big obvious risks, you know, the things that are coming at you that you need to deal with. I ask people to say, okay, you know, what's your gray rhino? What's the big obvious thing? How are you dealing with it? And how could you do it better? With risk, I ask people, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? And after that, what's the biggest risk you've ever not taken? How do you feel about it? What does that say about your personality and who you are? And once you know that, uh, what would you like to be? What kinds of things would you like to change about how you take risks? Once you have that self-awareness, it is such a powerful tool for your own growth, but also for showing risk empathy to others, to your teammates, to your clients, to your friends and family, to realizing that they might have a very different idea about risk from yours, whether it's how much time to leave to get to the airport or, you know, I have a, a, a couple of friends where the woman is a serial investor taking big, big bets and husband won't do anything more, more challenging than a mutual fund, you know, but realizing being, being able to talk about those differences is so powerful. It will help you get past conflicts where you didn't necessarily know what the root was. So, you know, we make give or take 35,000 choices every day. Every choice is a risk. Every risk is a choice. And so we need to be much more deliberate and mindful and aware of what goes into why we take the risks we do and why we pass on others and what that says about who we are. Beautiful. I really appreciate you coming on the show and I enjoyed your book, You Are What You Risk. I recommend everybody read it. So thanks again, Michelle, for being here today. Thank you. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. Wait, keep listening. If you like this show and want to learn more on how to be a transformational leader, I have a special offer for you and a gift in just a moment. Thanks for following me on LinkedIn where you can get more leadership tips from me. And also, I really appreciate you sharing, liking, and giving me a review in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Remember, if you consider yourself a current or future high-potential executive that wants to have influence, impact, and radically increase your income, I invite you to reach out to me on my contact page on womensleadershipsuccess.com so we can connect. Lastly, be sure and check out my Action for Traction for this episode in the show notes at womensleadershipsuccess.com. You will get three easy but powerful steps you can take immediately, plus some downloadable articles and videos based on this interview to help you truly be a transformational leader. Bye for now. See you soon. Thank you for joining your host, Sabrina Brahm, on another Women's Leadership Podcast. If you have questions or comments, you can email her at sabrina at sabrinabrahm.com. 
Since 1989, Sabrina and her team have helped hundreds of women managers, business leaders, and entrepreneurs with valuable trainings, articles, books, and executive coaching. For additional tips, interviews, and free access to Great Leaders Today mini-course, visit www.womensleadershipsuccess.com.